I just kind of felt like I'd done everything I could do in Houston. Time to come to New York. Did you have a job lined up? No. I had a plan. (laughs) There was no plan. Make it up as, as you go along. Hello and welcome to No Name NYC Podcast. My name is Eric Vetter, and if you don't know me, you're like most of America. I am the host and producer of No Name in a Bag of Chips, New York City's longest-running comedy variety show, as well as the host of this podcast, which is now a year old. If you're listening to this on the date that it drops, it's July 1st which is exactly one year from when our first episodes dropped. We have released two episodes a month, and so happy anniversary to us. Today we are having a conversation with Brown Furlow. The man has a wonderfully smooth voice. I love listening to him sing, and he's got an interesting story on how he landed here because, you know, a lot of people have that, you know, I got out of high school or I got out of college and I came to New York to become a star Uh, What Brown did was kind of reverse of all of that. We'll get to the conversation we had with Brown in just a little bit. So I want to go back to that thing of anniversaries and such. No-name live shows are coming up on 30 years. Next February, it'll be 30 years. After all these years of doing shows, we had this little chunk of time where we weren't doing anything. Well, we are back doing live shows again. We have been since earlier this year. I want to give you a few upcoming dates. On July 11th, we'll be back at Word Up Bookshop in Washington Heights. We will be doing our monthly Super Story Party show, co-hosted by author of Fish Out of Agua, master storyteller Michelle Carlo. Among our guests will be Dave Lester and Jeff Rose and Rhonda Handsome and more. And you can come and you can sign up for five minutes of stage time at the end of the evening if you'd like. July 11th at Word Up Community Bookshop. On July 16th, this is actually not a no-name show, but I'm pretty excited about this. I'm doing a guest spot at a storytelling show called New Tricks, hosted by the very funny Adrienne Frost. I'm very honored to be included. There's a great lineup, including folks like Carla Katz and Tracy Starin, and somewhere in the middle of that, me, doing storytelling at the one and only QED in Astoria Sunday, July 16th at 7 p.m. So please, if you're able to come on through, man, that's going to be a blast. About a week later, on Saturday, July 22nd, this is an unusual time for us, at 5 o'clock p.m. at Recirculation, the bookshop in Washington Heights. It's a sister store to Word Up. Uh, We're doing something a little fun, a little different. We're doing uh, No Name Presents Comedy Goes to Court, a book event with author... Carl Onebu, that's U-N-E-G-B-U. He's got a new book out called Comedy Goes to Court about times when various topics relating to comedy have been argued out in court, whether it be content of act or artists trying to get paid by club owners. That's never a problem. And uh, among our guests will be Leanne Lord and uh, Robert A. George. And uh, they'll be doing some stand-up, and there'll also be a panel discussion, and there'll be a book signing. Carl will be there to sign copies of his books, and uh, we're going to have the band, the the summer replacements will be there. We're going to be doing some music. It's going to be a party, man. Come on out. Recirculation, 5 o'clock p.m. It's free. 
Saturday, July 22nd. All right, that's the end of the plugs. So since we last put out a new episode, we've returned to doing no-name shows at QED, and it was kind of exciting. You know, we've been doing some shows since earlier this year, but most all of the shows have been things at the bookshop, co-hosting with Michelle. But this QED show we did on the last Saturday in May, that was my first time hosting solo a comedy show since losing my vision, and it was a uh, it was our first time back at QED, which was also great. It was very exciting, and I didn't know what to expect, and the place was packed, and it was weird too to to be there and for the place to be packed, and I couldn't see people. It's like I knew this was going to happen. It's not exactly a surprise. It didn't sneak up on me. It was a great evening. I went out there, uh, got a couple of laughs right off the bat, and that was great, and everybody knocked it out the park. The music was great, and the, the vibe was great, and all the guests were really funny, and I was just, I was overwhelmed by emotion that night. That's not a bad thing, but, like, you know, you do your preparation, and, and, and you come ready to go, and try and be cool and all that, and, and I discovered I'm fine at being me on stage and being honest, but being cool... <laughs> I got to work on that. After the opening and, you know, we started bringing up the guests, everything was fine, but I was like blubbering like a baby <laughs> through a chunk of the opening, you know, aside from the, the emotion of being up there. And then we, you know, we want to acknowledge people we've lost in no-name family since the last time we were there. And, you know, remembering uh, Tom from Word Up Bookshop who passed away and Father Vincent, bouncer from Otto Shrunken Head and our very beloved bass player, Fernando Morales-Gonzalez. You know, we we have a longstanding tradition of no name. Whenever we do a show and we, you know, we've lost somebody since we last did a show, we have our, what I think is a very unique tribute, and I'm really proud of this. Some places will say we'd like to ask for a moment of silence and remembrance, uh, but we're no name. We're performers. We're loud people. (laughs) We don't do that. What we do is we acknowledge them, we, we remember them, and then we ask for a moment of standing ovation and that never fails to turn me to mush and I was already mush that night so you know I had to kind of keep reminding people you know or reminding myself actually if anything is it's gonna be all right no everything's fine it's just it's very emotional whatever and we got underway and everything was great but I want to thank everyone who came out to support us I think we're doing some of the best shows we've ever done and people are just happy to be back We hope to see you again real, real soon. And so I already mentioned a bunch of shows. Let's get to the conversation with Brown Furlough. First, a word from our sponsor. Get away to Green Bay! That's right. The historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a bed and breakfast before, but the breakfast in a lot of these places tends to be like a mini box of cereal or uh, some questionable fruit, things of that nature, a piece of toast maybe with some butter. But not at the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast. Your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Stieber, will provide you with a delicious, absolutely world-class breakfast every single morning. They will also make you feel welcome in any one of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have a private bath and some of which have their own jacuzzi. 
If you want to know what's going on around town, Tom and Linda will let you know about any special events, and they'll also make recommendations for you to any of the wonderful restaurants in town. So you can't beat it. Go. Go now. Go. Get away to Green Bay. For more information or for reservations, go to www.astorhouse.com. That's A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E.com. Get away to Green Bay. How, how, how you been? I haven't seen you in for forever, man. Uh, I've been, I've been all right. Um, let's see what's what's going on. I'm just singing. I'm, I've been doing a um, open mic at at Percano on 89th in Amsterdam on Sunday afternoons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recently did a feature spot there of about uh, a half hour. I did all Frank Sinatra songs. Oh, really? Uh, I've never yeah. heard you do Sinatra, I don't yeah. think. Yeah. I, and and um, the other thing I've been doing is uh, I tutor. I work in a tutoring program. Past couple, I've been in the program for five years. In the last mm-hmm. couple of years, I've worked at an elementary school in East Harlem. Reading Partners is the uh, name of the program, and... Uh, um, I've been with them for five years. The past two years, I've worked at PS 375 in mm-hmm. uh, Harlem. And uh, uh, I, I tutor one kid one-on-one. The past couple of years, I've tutored a really nice uh, fourth-grade kid. And he's started out with a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And he's made a lot of progress this year. Uh, probably, we just finished up for the year, and I'll probably be back there uh, next uh, next fall. Oh, Nice. Nice. Uh, the design of the thing that you'd be uh, working long term with specific kids, or or is it just whatever the draw is? Pretty much whatever the the draw is. It it has to coincide with my schedule. You know when when I can be there. And uh, after working this with this one kid last year, I requested that I work with him again mm-hmm. this year. Unfortunately, it, it worked out. And I might even be working with him next year. We'll see. I don't know, even know for sure what school. I'm gonna be. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna be at. But, uh, mm-hmm. but that's, that's nice. So, so uh, been doing that for a while now, right? Yeah, yeah. But, Some, you know, I have to say something. I was thinking about. You know, on my way here today, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, maybe some people we speak with, but also, you know, just in general, you know, you talk about artists in New York City. A lot of times, you're you're talking about the the people who get out of high school or you know, graduate college and they they want to come to New York and pursue the dream of being a performer. And I was thinking you, you kind of, your your route to New York and performing was almost the reverse on that. It was, it was pretty uh, Is it, you, you, How strange. long have you been in New York? Since 1979. I didn't realize you'd been here that long, yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, but I know, where are you originally from? Um, I grew up in Brookhaven, Mississippi, mm, mm. from the time I was two until I graduated from college. Uh, I lived there. I, um, I, I graduated from college. I graduated from the University of Southern Mississippi mm-hmm. um, in 1976, and I, gradu- I, I graduated in theater from there. And um, some of my classmates were headed straight for New York. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I was not ready for New York at that at that particular 
point in time. So um, what I did was I, I went to Houston. Mm-hmm. My grandparents had lived there. I, I would go there during the summers when uh-huh. I was growing up. And it's, it's safe to say the happiest times of my childhood were the weeks that I spent in Houston during the summer. Mm. So I, I had you you weren't crazy about Mississippi. Well, there was nothing. Uh, there was nothing. To, Mississippi had nothing to offer in terms of working in the theater mm. at that point. How, how old were you when you first knew you, you wanted to do theater? When did you first feel the bug? Uh, pre- pretty young. Growing up, I went to the movies all the time, mm-hmm. every, every week, two or three times a week, and I saw. Everything I saw: Jerry Lewis, Elvis, John Wayne, Doris Day, uh, and then I saw some of the more highbrow stuff: uh, Lawrence Harvey and and James Mason. And I would watch old movies on TV. I'd watch movies with William Powell and Michael Rennie, <laughs> and uh, I just knew it that growing up, I knew it somehow I was going to be uh, a, a part of this. And um, so when I became a theater major at, at Southern Mississippi, I really wanted to be a director. I wanted mm-hmm. to be a, a stage director. I wanted to be Mike Nichols. And um, what was it uh, about Nichols that did it for you? Did you graduate or? Well, he was, he was both a, a, a great film director and a great stage director as True. well. Yes. And his yes. movies were... I mean, like, what was, do you remember the first bit of work of his that you saw? The Graduate. Okay, there you go. And this guy was making movies for grown-ups. Mm-hmm. And, and it's something that, well, maybe in the independent film, but uh, the major studios these days certainly don't make films for, for grown-ups. But <laughs> he was, uh, at the time that he did The Graduate, he was working on Catch-22. Mm-hmm. And I just finished reading Catch-22, and oh, my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is, uh, immediately became my all-time favorite book. And so, um, uh, and then Carnal Knowledge was sort of mm-hmm. like the third part of the trilogy. I mean, these were movies about sex for grown-ups. So, but he was also directing on, on Broadway. He was doing Barefoot in the Park and The Odd Couple and all that. So... Uh, I, I wanted to be a theater director. It didn't take me long to realize that I hated trying to be a theater director. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I might have lacked the leadership qualities. Nobody was really listening to me. When I was, I'm when sorry, I, what was that? Nobody was listening ah, to me. See what I did uh, there? Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. yeah, real cute. So, uh, and of course, I, I was acting because that was the way to learn to direct was to act. And my, my fellow students and my teachers were telling me, no, 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 you're not a director, you're an actor. So it be, interesting. Be, yeah, interesting. But you actor. didn't have the desire to do that. Well, it kinda kinda did. Yeah. I kinda <laughs> wanted to do both. I wanted but I just I I shucked direct directing and just went for the acting. Um one thing I should tell you mm-hmm. is that um I never was a musical theater actor. Mm. And uh, uh, something that later on, the way that the direction that my life turned later on, people were kind of surprised. But occasionally I would find myself in a musical. I, I played, um, I was in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. I played Linus yeah. when I was a When I was in high school, I actually played Charlie Brown in that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, well, it, it, it was fun for me because I was uh, uh, obsessed with 
Charles Schultz and Peanuts and all of that, but uh, landing the lead wasn't all that impressive. They had auditions. As the play was originally written, there are five-part, six-people auditions. So uh, yeah, <laughs> it was less that I won the lead that I didn't blow it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I can see you being a great Linus, though. Well, um, yeah, I, I was a little thinner at the time than I, than I am now. <laughs> At, this was uh, not at the University of Southern Mississippi. This was at a uh, small uh, junior college. Uh, it's now called Capai Lincoln Community College. Mm-hmm. Small rural junior college. And up to this time, we had never done a musical. And a musical had never been done at that school. Uh, so this was the first musical that was ever put on there and it was a kind of a big thing it, and was it, was it a, for you personally since you had not uh, set out to do something like that was it a matter of oh well this is the project that the department is putting on so i'm auditioning or was it like oh hey got a chance to do this uh kind of kind of a, a little bit of both i for some reason i was having a hard time getting parts in in plays at this college and all of a sudden they this they were doing this musical and I thought, okay, I can, I can sing a little bit. Uh, I can probably. Had you ever get, sung in public at that point? Uh, well, years earlier, I had been in a boys' choir in Brookhaven, and uh, church related. It's, it, no, it's a little bit of a tawdry story. <laughs> uh, in the town where I grew up, Brookhaven, Mississippi, there was a small private college. It was called Whitworth College. My my mother had taught there years earlier. Following World War II, that's where she was teaching when she met my dad. Uh, but by the 60s, this college was kind of on its last legs. Mm-hmm. But there was a, a music teacher there who started a local boys' choir. And my older brother was in it, and uh, he got me to audition for it, and I was in it. I was the, I, I think I was 10. I was the youngest, uh, I was the youngest kid in the, uh, uh, in the choir. And, uh, and the uh, college-related choir. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the teacher was from college, and it was sponsored oh, okay. by the college. But it, there were no college kids. It was mostly kind of uh, middle school age kids. We we did two performances. We did a Christmas performance at the auditorium at, at Whitworth, and we did an Easter performance at the local Episcopal church. And then all of a sudden, we we one Saturday morning we showed up for practice. And we were told that there was no more choir and that this uh, music teacher from the college had been dismissed from from the school. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know why. And it caused a bit of a schism amongst the choir members. There were were those of us, my brother and I and my brother's friends. We all wanted to carry on without the choir director, with whoever they they would give us. Mm -hmm. And the other faction was like, no, if he's not going to be here, then uh, we're we're not going to be here either. Mm-hmm. So uh, eventually, some of those guys came around, and they did. Uh, the choir didn't last. They they did come up with another choir director for a few weeks, but that was the last of the choir. And I found out some years later that the reason that this instructor was dismissed is because it came to light that he was gay. Not one of the uh, enlightened places, I guess. No, no, that's the way things were in the old South. Okay. <laughs> um, so um, uh, I don't I don't really know whatever became of him. That, so that's really the only time I'd sung in public. Um, I didn't never had a solo or anything like that. But uh, 
Uh, so, yeah, so doing Linus and You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, somehow I was the only person that auditioned for the part. And they, just, <laughs> they just didn't have any musical theater people. And uh, so I, uh, anyway, I, after I graduated from this uh, junior college, I went to Southern Mississippi and, and Hattiesburg. And my first year there, my major was speech education. And somewhere along the line, I, I realized that uh, in Mississippi, there probably weren't going to be more than about one opening for a speech teacher in a high school <laughs> when I graduated. And it wasn't going to go to somebody with my GPA. <laughs> so, gotcha. So, um, and one of the courses that I had, to, I had to take an acting course, which was in the theater department. Mm-hmm. And I had to uh, take uh, what was called UT, University Theater, which was I had to work on the uh, sets and lights or whatever for the current production uh, that was going on, which I think was uh, Archibald McLeish's JB mm-hmm. was, was the play that was going on. And uh, I thought, you know, these guys look like they're having a lot of fun. There are a lot of pretty girls in this uh, department. I think I'm just going to switch over and uh, shuck uh, the education part and just uh, be a theater major. It took a little bit of uh, convincing my mom to let me do it, but I, it just sort of came down to, uh, you know, if, I, if I'm going to be in college, this is what it's going to be. Um, you want me to get yeah. a degree. Yeah, yeah. You want, <laughs> want me to, want me to get a degree. This is where it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, like, like I, I think this is where we started. Uh, when yeah, I, when yeah. I graduated, some of my friends were headed straight for New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I knew that I was not ready for New York. And so I, uh, so I went to Houston. I, I didn't really know what Houston had to offer me as in, in theater. Uh, your grandparents are still there? My, gran- my grandmother was still there, and I also had an aunt. Uh, that I was very close to, who lived there. You had a little bit of support there. there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And I lived with them for a while until I got set up. Uh, I never did get a shot at the Alley Theater, which was the big equity repertory theater in in Houston at the time. But I did manage to work with a couple of smaller, pretty pretty happening theaters, pretty happening kind of off-Broadway type Mm -hmm. theaters, and the material that I did there. In, in, in college, I was doing Thornton Wilder and uh, Agatha Christie, and, and but uh, here I was able to do David Mamet and David Rabe, mm-hmm. and I was in a uh, what well, one of the musicals that I few musicals that I was in was uh, the Rocky Horror Show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I just, I, I, for a moment, and this is you know me being a snotty New Yorker, but I'm just I'm thinking. In Mississippi, probably not a lot of mammoth and Rocky Horror going on. Not, not, at least not at that, that time. Not that much. Maybe in the, maybe a little bit in the in the college towns. I, I mean, this is the time when Rocky Horror was the rage. With the, right, everybody right. was showing up at the at the midnight screenings, and uh, that that may have been going on in Hattiesburg uh, at, at the same time. But no, the edgiest thing we did when I was at Southern Mississippi was I did a Tom Stoppard play. The Real Inspector Hound, which, okay, yeah. which is one of the funniest plays ever written. We could barely get through it without cracking up. I mean, it was, <laughs> um, it's great when you've got a project like that. Yeah, right? yeah. but um, I, I worked with um, a couple of smaller theaters, Equinox Theater, which is long gone by now, but which was a really happening theater. The in, in uh, Houston, in, in Houston, that's where I did uh, 
American Buffalo mm. by uh, Mamet and the basic training of Pablo Hummel mm. by mm. David Rabe and the Rocky Horror Show. And the people that ran that theater were pretty media savvy. They got a lot of press coverage. And, uh, and I worked with another theater called Reunion Theater, which kind of morphed into Stages, which is still there, which is now a major equity regional theater, mm-hmm. uh, probably rivaling the, uh, the alley uh, at this point. And uh, after a couple of years, I, I moved there in 76, and I, and, I moved, and I left there and moved here in 79. So after a couple of years, you I just... thought you were ready for New York? Yeah, I just kind of felt like I'd done everything I could do in Houston. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was time to come to New York. And when you, when you came to New York, did you have a, a, a job lined up? No. I, I had a plan? <laughs> uh, was there a plan? <laughs> there was no plan. Make, make it up as, as you go along. Um, I had an apartment. Fortunately, one of my friends from USM, I, there was a whole group of people. Like I said, my classmates, some of my classmates headed straight for New York after graduation. Were any of them still here? Oh, oh yeah, here? yeah, yeah. There was a whole, there was a Mississippi mafia uh, <laughs> here when I, when I got here. <laughs> and, and that's just a frightening image. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, so I, so I had a place to stay. One of my first jobs, and God, this is a terrible job, was working for a, a, a polling company. It was a company that did the, uh, ABC Harris polls. So I would sit there on a phone and just call people all day and ask them if they were going to vote for Jimmy Carter or Jerry Brown or Ronald Reagan or whatever. And um, that that part wasn't so bad, but we also had to do market research. We would call up these uh, farmers who used a certain weed killing product and ask them how how effective the uh, weed killer was and and and, and such and. And and the, you know it was minimum wage. It was barely a subsistence. A subsistence. Yeah. Uh, uh, I I think one of the people who worked at this place at that time was Nathan Lane. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to be listening to Nathan Lane asking <laughs> farmers about products. That, I don't uh, know. I don't know how good he was at the job, but I'm sure it was damn entertaining. Well, a few years later, when I started seeing this guy on Broadway and and off Broadway and and on TV, I thought, pretty sure he worked at this uh, telephone surveying company that I that I worked at. Um, anyway, um, no, I didn't have, I didn't have a job lined up. I. Uh, I managed to get a part in a little off-off-Broadway play almost as soon as I got up here. I got that through a friend of mine in, uh, from Houston who was living here now, and he was he and his girlfriend were in this play, and uh, they they knew that there were some parts yet to be cast. So they got me an interview with the director, and just almost the first month I was up here, I was uh, cast in a in a show, and okay. uh, uh, one of the actors in that show helped me get a job at the Barnes & Noble sale annex on 18th Street and 5th Avenue, which mm-hmm. is long gone, but which was a huge... Uh, yeah, it was kind of a legendary shop. For it it really was. It was a great place to do character studies. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Every eccentric, every weirdo in New York, that place was their second home. I, and, yes. Yes, I and, recall that. And 
Uh, you know, it, it was definitely a, a, a different, it was not an identical demographic to the main Barnes & Noble. No, no. <laughs> clientele. But, but we also got a lot of celebrities in there. I, you know, I, I waited on uh, Geraldine Page, Barnard Hughes. Mm-hmm. I, I remember, uh, let's see, a wonderful character actor who I think just died recently, Michael Lerner, mm-hmm. uh, would, would come in there, Thomas Hulse. Ramsey Clark, the former Attorney General of the United States, was mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. was a regular customer. John Simon, the the critic, all, all these all these people would uh, uh, would would come in. So um, so while you're working there, uh, are you starting to make the the rounds of auditions yeah. and all that sort of stuff. That's yeah, I would, I would part get, of the life. I would get backstage every week. <laughs> Uh, I would go to these uh, auditions. God, it was so depressing. <laughs> You'd show up for some little play that was going to be done in a church basement someplace, and there'd be 150 other people there. But over the course of, well, let's say of, of the 80s, between uh, 1979 and about, I was, I was at Barnes & Noble for nine years, so I guess until 80, 88, I did a oh, eighteen or twenty off off Broadway productions, uh, what we now call downtown theater, mm-hmm. um, which was big enough to be considered a movement yeah. at one point. Yeah, yeah, and uh, a lot of it was junk, and some of it was pretty good. Uh, there were a couple of things that I did that I was uh, that were pretty memorable. I think in nineteen eighty five, in order to supplement my income. I got a substitute teacher's license and started doing that on my days off, started substituting on my days off from the bookstore. And that eventually sort of took on a life of its own. And in, I believe, 1990, I uh, got a license, became a full-time teacher, went to work for PS 189 Manhattan. Okay, that was going to be my question. Like, so, so public schools, um, well, you've been around New York long enough by that point that you had an idea of what you were stepping into, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. And um, and where is that? I, I'm, 189? Yeah. Uh, 189th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. Oh, okay. It's kind okay. of sandwiched in between George Washington High School and Yeshiva University. It's an interesting mix of schools. Yeah. So um, I was there for 22 years, I think, 21 years. I was there until 2013. And I, I shucked acting at that time. I totally had no, no, no plans to ever go back to performing. I thought I'm, mm. you know, just... Uh, You're just tired of the whole Well, I, I just, yeah, there, there's just no, well, there was no time for it when I was teaching, even during the summers. I didn't want to spend my summers... Sometimes I would get an offer to do a, a play during the summer, and I just thought, no, my time off is too valuable. <laughs> yeah, I just I, I just kind of lost interest in it. I thought I'd get my years in, get my retirement, and then I'll f- figure out what I uh, what I want to do when I retire. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and let uh, me ask you before you you took your your break from performing. Uh, af- after your experience back with with your good man Charlie Brown, did you do any more musical stuff after that? Uh, I did a couple of musicals during the eighties, off off Broadway musicals, kind of weird. And one of them was rather memorable. One of them was a, <laughs> what made it memorable. Uh, it was just a, a really well written show. It was called Dancing on the Third Rail. It was written by a guy named Dan Wrench. 
I lost touch with him years ago. I don't know what, what happened to him. Uh, the uh, songs were by a guy named Daryl Curley, who, I, who was still around. I see his name on a lot of flyers and, and stuff for cabarets and, and things. I've got to hit him up one of these days and see if he remembers me. But uh, And it was just, I think, I think it could have gone on. I think it could have gone on to Off-Broadway had the author and the producers been ambitious <laughs> enough to, to do that. But I don't think they were really interested in doing that. So it, so it's not like I didn't sing at all. I did, I did sing. I was just kind of part of the ensemble. I didn't have a major part, but I, I played several different parts in the show. If you, if you saw me you, in the show, you, you'd remember me. I, you know, I got, I got my licks in. Um, and uh, so I did. So I did do some singing. And I, during this time, I had always regretted not developing my singing voice more and uh, taking lessons and just uh, singing more. Back in the day, I was a lot more interested in Arthur Miller than I was in Rodgers and Hammerstein Mm -hmm. when I really should have been doing both. And Mm -hmm. so um, uh, the part where you come in is we're getting pretty close to that. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Uh, I feel like there's, there's a gap there somewhere. No, we're we're, we're getting we're, the years you were selling your, yourself on the street and all we're, that. <laughs> we're we're getting close to the part where you come into the story. Uh, <laughs> okay. So uh, during the uh, last my last few years of, of teaching, uh, I made a good friend, a guy named Mark Sackman, who was a music teacher at 189, and we had a lot of uh, common interests when it came to music. So during our downtime, we would go into the music room and just kind of jam, you know, sing the Beach Boys or uh, Leonard Cohn. Uh, and uh, one Christmas, our principal asked Mark to get a band together for a staff party. And he asked me if I wanted to do a couple of songs. Mm-hmm. And I said, do you mean outside of the music room and <laughs> in front of grownups? And he said, yeah, Mr. Furlow, that's pretty much what I mean. So uh, so I did it, and it didn't go too badly. And I started thinking about, well, uh, maybe this is something I could do. Mm-hmm. So um, also around the same time during the last year or so of my teaching, uh, I, I started to think about, well, what do I want to do with myself once I get my retirement? I was at the time I was a poker player. I thought, well, I could take the bus to Atlantic City every day and uh, play two four poker. <laughs> uh, I could uh, take up scrapbooking. Maybe I'll backpack across China. But I uh, all, all of these were just gnawing at you. For yeah, years, yeah. Uh, so uh, now you get your big opportunity. So I thought, well, what about singing? And uh, I, I went to a friend of mine, uh, you know her, Sharon Fogarty. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, she was uh, living in the neighborhood at, at the time. And I asked her to work with me on voice lessons and getting a repertoire together. And I, I didn't really know what Where I was going to do. Where did you know do. her from? From the neighborhood. Oh, from, like, yeah. I mean, had you seen her no, before? I, just... I met her at uh, the Piper's Kill. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he beloved late the the late uh, late limit <laughs> uh, 
Well, it's still sort of living on, but uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, I, I I just knew her from the from the neighborhood. At at this time, she was living in my building. She had moved uh, into an apartment in my building, uh, and she was a monstrously talented singer, songwriter, playwright, director, musician, uh, you you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so I went to her to, for voice lessons, and like I say, I didn't really know what I was going to do. Join a? Am I going to join a chorale or start an acapella group? So Sharon started um, encouraging me to go to open mics. But well, friends never tell you to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, trying, oh, yeah. I'm thinking more from the comedy yeah. side. Uh, <laughs> it's a little different. Yeah. So I was, <laughs> I was like gulp. Yeah. Uh, so one night we happened to be at the Indian Road Cafe and it was a Monday night and we had planned to have dinner and go back to my place for my voice lesson. And it happened to be the night that there was an open mic there that night. And it was uh, hosted. Say, what the hell is that racket? <laughs> it was hosted by Eric Vetter and Alex D'Souz. So uh, we didn't stay for the whole thing. We really just heard Alex, get out while uh, you can, dude. <laughs> well, we needed to get back for my lesson, but on right. on on the we we heard Alex sing, and on the way back, I said, "Well, look, next month we'll we'll come and just sit through the whole thing and mm-hmm. find out what it's like." And Sharon said, "Nah, next month we'll come and you'll sing." So we came back the next month, and I, I was really nervous. Nervous. Uh, fortunately, it rained like hell that afternoon, <laughs> so the place wasn't very crowded. And um, Alex was signing people up. And yeah, I, if it was one of those kind of nights. Yeah, I mean, we, there, there were times we drew really well there, but there were other nights. <laughs> it might have been one of those nights where we, with the pouring rain and we, we, we might have been like, hey, you want to sing, please? <laughs> you know, it was, there were definitely nights where we had people wanting to sing everything in their repertoire. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and there were other nights where there were definitely a handful of nights where it was kind of like that. Yeah, um, and you, if if memory serves, uh, you, we were very thankful to have you sign up that <laughs> night. Well, when I when I went to Alex to sign up, I said, "Look, I've never done this before. I live in this neighborhood. I hang out at this cafe. If I get up here and make a fool of myself, I still have to come back." Uh, <laughs> No choice. Every everybody here knows me, and she said, "Don't worry, you'll be fine. I'll let you know if you suck." So, um, <laughs> is that her exact phrasing? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what she said. <laughs> I, oh, there's only a certain brand of person who can put out a line like that, and and it doesn't sound bad. It sounds no, no, comforting. Say, she, say she's that. Got and, that gift, and and it comforts you. I'll, I'll let you know if you suck. Um, <laughs> So when it came my time to sing, I went up. I did two songs. Mm-hmm. The first song I did was "Try to Remember" from the musical oh, The Fantastics. Yes. I I was inspired to do that by a uh, version that The Temptations had done. Ooh. Um, the Temptations did an album back when I was in high school called The Temptations in a Mellow Mood. Where they don't do temptation songs. I've heard the album, but I I, I know it is. You've probably heard some cuts from the album. It's absolutely beautiful. First time I played it, I just wore it out. I just (laughs) played it over and over again. And they do this great version of Try to Remember with the great Eddie Kendricks singing singing lead on it. And 
So I kind of did my Eddie Kendricks version of <laughs> Try to Remember. And then the second song I did was probably, if I, if I had to say what my favorite song in the world was, if you ask me, what is your very favorite song? Uh, I think my favorite song is a song called Marie by Randy Newman. Mm. And that's the second song that I did that night. So, uh, you know, I got through it. It's like big. Um, <laughs> as I was going back to my seat, Alex went up to the mic and she said, Mr. Furlow, we expect to see you back here next month. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> no, we and, we uh, were so so happy because honestly, I I didn't get the whole story until after the show was over. But I I remember when you got on the mic, I'm like, ah, eh, you know, fresh meat. Yeah, you know, <laughs> another sucker, you know. Yeah, and uh, and not, not that I was expecting something bad, but I was like, okay, well, it, it, you know, you know, it was one of those nights that is like you you're expecting the usual suspects, you know. Yeah, man, I, I tell you, from the first time you you got on that mic, you just you're what do they call call Torme, the Velvet Smog. The, vel- the Velvet, yeah, the Velvet Wait, smog. no, I'm, not, I'm thinking of a Flintstones episode. Uh, yeah. but but it, the, <laughs> my what I was trying <laughs> through all that madness, what I was trying to do is actually give you compliments. Such a, a a beautiful and smooth voice it was like you know the for that particular evening it had this feeling of like uh coming coming from the rain get just get warm kick back and and get comfortable man and yeah. it, it, was, it added something very nice to the proceedings so we yeah. were happy well by the way there by the way this month is the 10-year anniversary of wow. of that evening I you know I was trying was, uh, to to trying to to figure out the the numbers the other day because I, yeah. it had been the intent with that was going to be a very brief uh, hiatus and uh, we do still have the intent of bringing it back but any anyway but yeah, we had a nice four and a half year run at that spot uh-huh. you you started doing that with us you know roughly like the last year or so June two thousand thirteen <laughs> man I, I I need you to and... keep my hall of records. Uh, yeah, I and it, it was the last month of my teaching career. Oh. So, uh, I mean, I literally closed one door and entered another. That, oh, that's that crazy. Month. I didn't know yeah. that. I didn't know, you know, where it was in relation yeah. with that. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think I came for the uh, next 16 months, mm-hmm. every, every month for the next 16 months. The only one I missed was... Uh, I went back to the to the boards, returned to the boards for a play that Sharon wrote, um, a play called Witch Christmas, mm-hmm. and uh, I played Santa Claus um, in it. And uh, that was the only month that I missed at Indian Road because I was involved in that show. But I, I think I was there for about two years before before it came to an end. Well, it, it, at least at least you were able to show your face back there again. That that would have been awful. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I didn't. I, I I thought it was okay. I think I think think I did well enough that I can I can show <laughs> yes, my face. You uh, know, I remember but, uh, speaking with you after the fact, and that that's when I heard. You know, I wouldn't have been able to show my face. Like, okay, you're you're okay. You're yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're past kid. <laughs> so um, after a couple of months doing the Indian Road open mic, I took the plunge 
and went downtown and started performing at an open mic at Symphony Space. Um, yeah, I used to yeah. always hear, I, I only went yeah. there once or twice myself, but I used to always hear reports of you being yeah. down there and kind of it, it was it, it was at the uh, uh, Barthalia, and what, what was so strange was during my first 10 years or so in New York, the Thalia Movie Theater, which was around the corner from Symphony Space on 95th Street, was almost like my second home. I went there all the time. and I spent many, many yeah, hours I'm in sure that you place did. myself. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you did. And I saw everything there. Uh, Buster Keaton and Alec Guinness and, and Truffaut, just, just every everything. And so it was a very special place during the 80s. And then it uh, it closed... I think in the early 90s, I think it opened up for a little bit at one point, closed again. And then they, around 2000, I think that's when they renovated yeah, Symphony Space and incorporated the Thalia into the Symphony Space complex. And they turned the, the lobby of the Thalia into Bar Thalia. Uh, actually, it's called Leonard Nimoy Bar Thalia, because Leonard Nimoy. I forgot about Yeah, that. he kicked down a million bucks to, uh, yeah. uh, to, to renovate it. And um, so it became a special place. If you had told me back in the 80s, <laughs> I know. 30, 35 years from now, you will be singing in this spot. I, yeah, I don't know what I would have said. <laughs> yeah, and for, for those who, who ever experienced the, the Thalia in, in, in its repertory film uh, heyday, uh, you wouldn't have expected smooth cabaret singers in the place one day. You might have pictured... Yeah, uh, sorted porn flicks right. being shown there, uh, or it being abandoned, or or something like that. I mean, what it, it, it wasn't seedy, but it was definitely not uh, the the Regency Theater, which existed back in the day. Right. Also, yeah. was was kind of like the MGM, and this uh-huh. was kind of like the the Terry Tunes, yeah, uh, you know, or yeah. something like that. Yeah, uh, I want to get too film geeky for 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 folks here, but it's it just point being, I I understand it must have been a, a real kick to go in there with what they did with that place, and kind of you know a connection to an old phase of your life and now the new yeah. one, you know. Yeah. Um. And I I didn't even recognize the place the first time I yeah first time I walked in there, and so um for the next seven years. Up until the pandemic, that's where I went to hone my craft. And uh, the uh, the producer is a terrific guy named Dan Ambrose Boyd. And the uh, piano accompanist at the time was uh, David Pearl, who is a huge figure in my musical journey. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a musical director for me last year when I did a couple of shows at uh, Don't Tell Mama. Uh, yeah, and and will be again. I'm scheduled to be back there in September, and uh, uh, working with Dave right now on uh, some arrangements for some. Uh, oh, that's excellent! New I songs for the show. Yeah, yeah, and it was just a great. It, it was just this great big happy family. There were there were like probably 50 people who were either regulars or semi regulars at the time. Very very multicultural. Mm-hmm. It's one of the only, I, I would say, uh, voluntary multicultural endeavors that I've ever been a part of. 
yeah. multicultural by choice. Yeah, and you don't you don't that is not an overflowing uh, category in in New York cabaret for sure. You know, so it it, it was it was kind of a gem. Now are they are they down for the count for that? Uh, for the uh, the singer space open mic. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. Um, I really don't know what's going on with Barthelia. I it's as far as I know, it's reopened. Mm-hmm. I mean, Symphony Space is reopened. They're having right, events there now. Uh, I I think the bar is reopened. So I I don't I don't know. Um, we talk about it all the time when I see my other uh, uh, we we call each other space cadets when I see my fellow space cadets. Uh, I would I would love for them to be able to find a new place that would be big enough to to have it but keep thinking that i'll that i'll hear something but as far as i know uh you know the pandemic kind of put their kibosh on it for the time being all right well you know like you say doors close and others open and i'm I'm sure they're yeah i've gone to other places and i see you know my fellow uh, space cadets at um an open mic here, or somebody will do a show. Yeah, I've been to plenty of shows at Don't Tell Mama and Birdland, and uh, to see uh, people that I know from the uh, senior space open mic, and other we, people show up. You know, it, it, it. I have to tell you, you know, to to go from the guy with the great voice who was afraid of uh, humiliating himself in his backyard to doing multiple shows that Don't Tell Mama is, is, is a fun leap to watch. But I also want to talk about something else that happened in the interim. Uh, you recorded an album. I did. Uh, how did this come about? Because okay. it definitely wouldn't have seemed to have been in the plans when you were retiring from the teaching gig. No, something I never thought this would happen. During the time that I was honing my craft up here in New York, my, my nephew, Cole Furlow, who is a brutally talented musician, guitar player, engineer, uh, songwriter, was uh, getting a studio together down in Mississippi. So every time I talked to my brother, my brother said, you know, Cole would love to have your business if you want to come on down and, and, and record a, a CD. So I, uh, I was down there one year. Actually, it was for Cole's uh, wedding, and we talked for a few minutes, and I, and I said, you know... Uh, Shaw's, my brother Shaw has been talking to me, your dad has been talking to me about coming down and doing a CD. Why don't we talk about this sometime soon? So yeah, yeah. So so over the next few months, we settled on some songs that we wanted to do, and I worked on them here. Oh, by the way, somebody I should mention uh, who has been a huge part of my musical journey is my vocal coach, my current vocal coach, uh, Julie Lauren Stevens. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is a wonderful, uh, wonderful woman, op- opera singer. I met her through Sharon. Uh, we were in the play Witch Christmas together. And okay. Sharon and I were no longer uh, working with each other like in terms of vocal coaching. And uh, when that show was done, I got down on one knee and asked her, would you be my vocal coach? <laughs> <laughs> and she said yes. Uh, so um, uh, I worked on the, I worked on the songs with her. Uh, kind of a shower curtain ring type thing. Okay. Well, I mean, the important thing is you got down on your <laughs> yeah, knee. Yeah, I did. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I went down there. I think our first session was in 2016. And it was, uh, Cole had a studio set up in my brother's house in Brookhaven, Mississippi. 
and that's uh, that's that's where we did. And he's just a uh, incredibly talented producer, and he he had a job at a restaurant at the time. He would come home at three o'clock, take a nap on the sofa, get up at four o'clock, drink a pot of coffee, drink two Red Bulls, and, <laughs> and, and then explode. And I, and I and I would be going. I'm never going to get this guy up off the couch. And once he got into the studio, he was a madman, mm. just just a madman. So we got about eight cuts done that I thought we could use. And I, I went back down the following, I believe it was April of 17. We did a few more cuts. And then I went back down in 2008. We had, the, we had it done. I mean, he... I, I I flew I flew in did my thing did the vocals did my thing but then he was bringing other people in other musicians and the drummers trumpet players backup vocalists and working on it uh, uh, all this time during during that time so 2018 I went down and we worked on the packaging of the CD and uh, creating a new uh, website for it and we got it out in the uh, summer of 2018 and this is it right here it's called young man in a hurry <laughs> yeah I, I i remembered when you told me the title I'm like, oh that's a great title yeah well uh people ask me why would you call this young man in a hurry the face on the cover is obviously not a very young man <laughs> that's a cynical and, view and uh i i thought well we had to call it something but uh, I, at the time, I was thinking about Bobby Darren. Bobby Darren was a favorite singer of mine ever since I was uh, first started listening to music. And I remember watching a documentary about him on, I think it was on PBS a few years earlier. And uh, Bobby Darren knew that he wasn't going to live very long. He knew he had a heart condition, and he knew that his time was going to be limited. So according to his friends, everything about him was... Let's do this now. Let's do it now while I'm here. And so I thought, well, that's what he was. He was a young man in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Wow. So and and because I started rather late in this, you know, I realized I'm not going to have as much time to uh, accomplish everything as I would have if I were younger. I I also felt like I'm, you know, this is the time. This is the time to to do it. Do it now. Yeah, well, I mean, you you done good work. I've heard it. It's it, it's great, and and you're you're doing. And let me ask you this, just out of curiosity, because you you your journey led you through all the steps that that in 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 the phases that led you to here to where you're now a singer, you know, uh, really. And in terms of like talked about when you got out of college, all your friends, you know, that came straight to New York. How many of them stayed in the game? You came here and you did some things or whatever, and then, and then, fa- you know, found your place. Did how many of them stuck it out, and how many of them went elsewhere? Almost none of them. Almost none of them. Are, uh, I think one guy is is still here. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good friend of mine named Floyd Murier. Uh, but it's been a it's been a couple of years since I've since I've seen him. One of my best friends, Elvin Whitesides, moved to California after being here, uh, after my first year here. He had been here a couple of years. Mm-hmm. He moved to California. He eventually uh, had, a, had a pretty good career out there. 
he worked in the uh, film department at the L.A. County Museum of Art. And he was not only the projectionist for their theater there, but he also directed short documentaries. He, uh, he did one on the uh, Harlem Renaissance artist uh, Jacob Lawrence and uh, uh, got, got married, had a really great, successful marriage. And he did theater out there, film here and there. But he, uh, we, we lost him. He, he died about 12 years ago. We lost him really uh, prematurely. Some of them, I mean, they all, they all had their own story as to some of them. Some of them went other places and did theater. One one friend of mine, uh, Patrick Weathers, is a fairly successful musician. But no, for for a while, uh, well, I think this still goes on. There's a picnic in Central Park every year called the Mississippi Picnic. Mm-hmm. And it started, I think, the first year that I was here. I think it's still going on. I haven't been to it in decades because uh, every year that I would go to it, there would be fewer and fewer people there that I knew. And it just kind of came to the point where I was the last man standing. And then mm-hmm. and then I wasn't even doing theater for a couple of decades there. Well, let me ask you this. Now that you're, you're the thing you do, man, do you have any regrets slash did you, you know, miss being in in the theater game and all of that along the way and and I guess a, a sidebar question to that I'm giving you twelve questions in one question but all, I guess it's a matter of reflecting like would you have landed here and do you prefer where you landed versus where you were you you can unpack any yeah, of that, that was, however that a, you want that was about, to that was about five questions in one yeah uh, well you know what just just ask me this and, I have five bucks to pay day. <laughs> Uh, that's, uh, that's a little I'd, more direct. I'll, I'll answer your question. Basically, so, I uh, guess I'm just asking uh, you, yeah. re- reflecting on the yeah. past taken versus the path you would yeah. have taken. And well, I, I never right had now. I never had any regrets about becoming a teacher. Like like I said, I didn't have any plans to ever come back to performing. So once I once I got out of acting and theater and got into teaching, it was just a whole new thing. Plus, I was able to make a living at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I, I never had any any regrets there, but uh, I I think I think the path has been pretty satisfactory. You know, you know, back back when I was acting, there would be in almost every play I did, there would always be this one old guy who, or an or an older uh, actress, someone who was acting when they were in their twenties. They got married, had a family, their kids are now growing up, and they were getting back into it. I never wanted to be one of those people. <laughs> I never wanted to be the old guy who uh, shucked acting, went into business, retired, and then went back to acting. And but um, and I don't know if that's a universal thing, but it's definitely a, a, a New York thing of like off, off, and off, 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 off Broadway. There always seems to have like one or two people, you know, depending on the needs of the the play. There's like one or two people is like significantly older than than everybody else in in the thing and there's always a there's always seems to be a little melancholy there they're yeah. like it, it, it's not that they're sad i mean sometimes they're very happy with where uh-huh. they are yeah but but there, there's this definite palpable sense of this is very very different than the way you had pictured it when you were the age of everyone else in the cast yeah you know yeah once I once I discovered that I could sing and just got into uh, 
the open mics and the cabaret scene here in New York. I, I you know, I've, I've got a milestone birthday coming up. I'm next month. I'm going to be turning seventy. Whoa! And uh, and I'm counting on the singing to just sort of keep me going. You know, that's 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 what's sort of keeping me uh, keeping me young youngish. <laughs> Well, uh, young man, don't be in a hurry. What, what, if, what, if people want to see what you're doing and what you're going to be doing, where can they track you down? Where can they track down the, the album? Uh, the album you can get on my website, brownfurlowmusic.com. And there's still plenty of uh, copies in the warehouse. So uh, uh, you can also, uh, it's also available for download. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I guess uh, just to see... Uh, what I'm doing. Follow me on Facebook. You know, I'm on I'm on Facebook, so I'm always uh, posting whatever I'm doing there. Or and just do you have dates for the uh, Don't Tell Mama show? September 29th. September 29th. Yeah. Uh, what time? 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock. Man, if I can be there, I'm going to be there. And you better be there. I anyone who... <laughs> And to anyone who might be listening, <laughs> someone's listening. Uh, but anyone who might be listening, if you if you if you like a really good cabaret and and good music and and yeah, you know, it's going to be mostly standards. Uh, it's going to be kind of a kind of a mix of uh, stuff. But yeah, yeah, I I kind of like. Actually, it was Alex that a good friend, made, Alex made, D'Souza, yeah. who did in a previous episode. Uh, Alex D'Souza, who called me the master of the deep cut so, <laughs> so true that true yeah that. if i do sinatra don't expect to hear new york new york uh, i'll do something from <laughs> hey, can i just say on albums. behalf of uh cabaret uh, patrons all over the country thank you uh or at least all over new york <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh man why well, I, I can't wait I, I, all i'm saying is anyone who's listening if if if, if you like this type of stuff go check this out and if you don't like this type of stuff go you, you'll become yeah. someone who likes this type of stuff uh brian furlow thanks for talking with us man great catching up with you. thank you Keep thank you for having me and thank you for being the huge part of my musical journey over the Bam. past 10 years we were in the way we stepped great. aside you did your thing <laughs> anyway thanks a lot brian thank you That was our conversation with Brown Furlow. You know, I love his story, man. It's like the road to finding yourself as a as a performer in, in whatever discipline can be a torturous thing. It's always nice to hear someone who landed seemingly exactly where they should land, and they're happy. So uh, definitely check his show out and pick up the music. It's all good stuff. We're getting out of here now. We want to thank you for spending time with us. Thanks for coming to play with us today. I want to thank the people who put this thing together. First of all, the Grand Poobah himself, our producer and chief audio engineer, the one and only Gary Understudy Hardcastle. Thanks, Gary. Our theme music is written and performed by Courtney Hill, the king of the hill himself. Additional audio engineering done by Miles Mix Appeal Blue Spruce. Our production assistants, Stanley Recio and Jeremy Pueo. Thanks for helping escort the blind guy to the recording sessions. 
as we like to do, we always like to leave you with uh, some music and uh, interesting things. For people of a certain age, the mid-1980s in New York, the, the independent dance music scene was, was kind of a, in a uh, boom. Lots of stuff was recorded, lots of things were danced to. We're going to leave you with something that was recorded by the woman who co-founded No Name nearly 30 years ago, which meant she was like two years old at the time. This song is called Victim of a Joyride by Dawn Owens, who performed under the name Dawn, not to be confused with Tony Orlando Ann. And we're hoping to have her as a guest on an upcoming episode really soon. So anyway, until next time, thank you for spending time with us. My name is Eric Vetter. I love you all. <laughs>